a special welcome to this episode of the Pro Player Podcast. We have today with us a, a legend of the game in the US, Becky Burley, who not only has one of the longest standing records of any female coach in any college soccer program, but also has 75% winning record over 26 years at the University of Florida, 14-time SEC regular season title, NCAA Coach of the Year, four-time SEC Coach of the Year, national champion in 1998, beating the famous North Carolina Tar Heels 1-0. Becky is without doubt synonymous with soccer, coaching, culture, and everything that's right with the game. Could not be more delighted to welcome Becky Burley to the podcast. Becky, welcome. Wow, that, that's quite an intro. I feel pressure now. <laughs> Thanks for that. I appreciate it. Welcome back. I mean, you, I have to say you're partly responsible for this whole thing anyway, because uh, we met maybe five, six years ago uh, during a huge rain delay, an SEC college game, and got to chat in with you, luckily enough. And I remember after that, some of the support that you gave him to me as, you know, someone brand new in the country. And I've had an opportunity since then to, to thank you for that. But I think those moments in life that come along when perhaps you're going through a difficult time or perhaps, you know, the game, you're not quite where you want to be in the game or whatever, you do remember those moments. And I know a lot of people who listen to this and listen to our first series, they reach out and they tell me about the, the insight and things they, they, they get when they listen. And you certainly provided that for me. And one of the reasons that I wanted to get this off the ground was to, to, to provide that for other people. So a huge thank you. Um, I'm sure you've inspired many, many thousands of people, not just in this country, but around the world with the stuff that you do and the stuff you continue to do. Um, so for what it's worth, uh, a huge thank you. Um, we're delighted to have you here on the podcast today. I know there's a lot of people going to tune in to, to listen to, to your insight and the things you've got today. I know you're you're doing huge, amazing work with the What I've Winning program, and we'll definitely talk about that as well. But I'd like to take you right back to the start, if I may, uh, of the you know of your time at the University of Florida, which you are synonymous, obviously, with the changes that you must have seen, the, the the pioneering work that you must have done. There was no manual; nobody had been before and done it before. And I especially love the idea that there must have been so many times that you were faced with a decision or faced with a an issue that you have to make a decision on and you have to back yourself on. And I think a lot of aspiring young coaches out there and people in the game, you know, they get that moment. And they're not really always sure how to deal with it. And you must have been there a million times. So I'm going to shut up and just <laughs> let you have the floor. And, and I'm sure there's thousands of people going to tune into us to hear uh, how it all started and, and what you learned through that process. Well, I will tell you, uh, people have asked me, would you would you start a program again? And I'm like, ooh, done it once. I don't think I'd do it again. <laughs> it's, it's a monumental task for all of you who are in that position. Um, hats off because it is not easy. And I think you hit the nail on the head with the number, the sheer number of decisions that you make on a daily basis. Um, I actually can remember in we had a year where I was hired and we didn't compete yet. So we were just putting the program together, which by the way, was very unusual at that point. So props to UF for being so forward thinking in that. And so I remember during that year, you know, you're trying to recruit, you're trying to buy equipment. There was no soccer program at Florida at all. So like, it's like ground zero. And um, 
you're just trying to establish relationships within the community and try to you know feel like you're a part of it even though you're not competing it by supporting other teams because they're supporting you um and you know there's just so much of that that was happening on a daily basis i can remember thinking all right this is like on a monday because the weekends were the worst you're recruiting the whole weekend monday you get to your desk and you're like all right this is going to be a got a lot to do this week and i would say to myself all right i'm going to make a list of everything i got to get done this week and i'd be like oh no that's like way too overwhelming <laughs> and i'd be like all right i'm going to make a list of what i need to get done today and i would be like Whew. all right let's how about like what can i do before lunch <laughs> And that's, that's kind of where it landed was how do you just break it down into smaller chunks because it just seems so overwhelming um, from the beginning if you looked at it in long term pieces. Um, but in saying that, um, one of the other things that I really learned from that experience, and I think kind of set the tone for my career in a lot of ways and I could even go a step further back than Florida. But, you know, when I came to UF, I started that program when I was 26. And that's just crazy when you think of it now, like to start a program like Florida at 26. And at that point, I'm like, oh, I'm like five years into my career. Like I got a little street cred now, but like I'm still 26 and I'm at Florida. Like what the heck? And so um, I really leaned on the coaches of the other teams at Florida. And that's actually one of the things that attracted me to the job was the collaborative nature of the other coaches at Florida, because when you're trying to create a team, you know, think about it. Like normally when you're recruiting, your players are hosting players. Well, we didn't have any players. So the people who were hosting players were people from other sports. And um, those coaches were so freaking amazing in terms of the generosity that they gave me in terms of like, okay, let's, let's help her out. Let's come together. Let's be team Florida with our players, with ourselves. Um, so many, you know, conversations from legendary coaches at Florida on a daily basis um, that, that really shaped my career and, and allowed me to understand that it was okay to not have all the answers and to be able to like crowdsource those with other people who were in similar situations, because I feel like a lot of people get afraid to maybe come off as like, I don't know what I'm doing, or I, you know, I'm afraid that people will think something, some sort of some way about me if I don't know the answers. But I think everybody at Florida was like, oh, she's 26. She's going to need some help. So like that, that sort of gave me permission to ask and to be um, part of their world. And it totally changed my life for the better. It, it is unbelievable when you, when you say that. I think back to my 26-year-old self, and, and I don't think I'd have been anywhere able to have mental capacity to, to start a program. But there's obviously a lot of coaches watching this in their 20s, you know, listening to us in their 20s, and, and they're going through this. And nowadays, there's such a rush with social media and everything else to put, to put content out and show, you know, look how look how far I'm progressing, look how my career is progressing. What do you say to those coaches out there now who perhaps, you know, they, they're in those formative years and they, and they might feel that pressure, but we know how important your 20s and even your 30s are in terms of making you the coach you are today. People who are in that now, what do you say to those? That's a really good question because you know, to back it up a step further than Florida, I was a head coach of a college program that was very good at Barry College when I was 21. And they had won a national championship two years before I got there, right? And they had been coached by Ray Leone, who went on to have an amazing NCAA career as a coach. 
So I'm following this really great coach into a really great program. I'm 21 and there's four kids on that team who are older than me. And that's crazy to think about it now. But what I learned from that experience was um, I did not have any positional power at that point. You don't have positional power when you're coaching people the same age as you. And I have to think that there were kids on that team who were like, man, what are we doing here? Like, we're a, we're a national championship team and we hire a 21 year old, like, what are we doing? You know? And, um, so the only way to sort of find a way to help that organization is to add value. And so for me, the add value was like, I just, I wanted to show these players that I was going to be there to help them accomplish what their goals were, whether that was on the field to win another national championship, whether that was off the field to get their degree, whether that was to help them grow personally. Um, and so it was just like a service mindset instead of like a having to prove that I have all the answers mindset. And I think the energy behind those two things are, it's really different. And so I felt like I could live in that space of like, okay, what can I do to add value to this program in so many ways? instead of what can I do to prove myself that I belong here? And there's no question, like all of us, I mean, all of us have imposter syndrome at some point in our career, probably multiple times in our career. You know, I coached all that time at Florida. I'm the interim coach for the Orlando pride. And I'm like, well, it's going to be pretty sweet. And then I'm like, Oh, like I have to actually do this. You know, like I got to coach like Alex Morgan and Sid LaRue and Ashlyn Harris and Allie Krieger. Like, that's pretty like intimidating, you know? So like we all have that no matter what stage you're at. But I think if you, if you worry less about what the outside people are thinking and more about like, how do I add value to this organization? It sort of keeps you focused on, you know, keeping the what's important, important. I want to pick up on that moment you're describing because I think everybody listening will, will, will resonate with what you just said. There is a moment in your career where you go from Perhaps you're always fighting for the table, but there's a moment where you go from it being about you and what you know to them and what they need. And I think everybody understands this moment. And some people will be there, some people won't be there. To hear someone with your career so far, Becky, and your you know illustrious background talking in such a vulnerable way, you are going to allow others to be able to think that for themselves. That is strength that this whole thing was about. People don't speak like you are. They don't say what you've just said. Why don't we have that inner strength in the industry? Why don't people face that, what you've just said? And how do you, how can you feel so strong to speak that way now? Um, I, I don't know if it's that we don't have the strength. I think it's more like what is in the environment that keeps you from being your true self, you know, and, and honestly, I think what helped me, because I feel like most coaches, you coach the way you were coached, right? I had some amazing coaches from high school to club to college. Um, none of them were at all like me, like very, very, very different from me. And I think that was actually hugely helpful because I couldn't be them. Like it would be ridiculous for me to try and be them. Like my college coach, Joe Pereira, like fiery Portuguese guy who like you would literally run through a wall, literally run through a wall for him. If I tried to deliver that, I think people would be looking at me like, what, what is she doing? And who is this? <laughs> and so like, I had to figure out like what was authentically me. And because I was put in that seat at such a young age, I got so many reps at um, learning to coach through 
influencing behavior as opposed to having power over behavior. And that, that changed a lot because it wasn't like I had this master plan, like I'm so smart, like, like don't try to be power over because you don't have it. I was just like trying to survive <laughs> and survival was, okay, let me see how I can influence behavior. But there were times like I, I specifically remember in my first season, uh, we had a really, really good player, center back, extreme, like all American um, leader of the team. And I decided to sub her in one of the early games. And um, she comes out of the game, walks over to the bench, kicks the water cooler off the bench. My assistant coach, who they had asked me to retain, so he had already been there. He walks up to me and he's like, you're going to talk to her, right? And I'm like, of course. And in my mind, I'm like, I'm really scared. Please, <laughs> because, please, no. You know, like it's, it was kind of like the first time you're sort of uh, putting your imprint on the team and making decisions that maybe hadn't been made before. And that, that's scary no matter what. It doesn't matter at what stage you are in your career. Like, and I guess unless you get to the point where you're just like fully realized your confidence, I don't know if I ever got that to that. I think I'm always in a state where I'm like, I want to have confidence in what I do, but it doesn't mean I don't second guess it. It doesn't mean I don't think about, did I make the right decision? And it doesn't mean it doesn't scare me. But I also feel like if you're not a little bit scared, you're probably not pushing the envelope enough in your decision making. I think that's a great way to put it. I, uh, I promised when I set this up that I would, I would try and ask the questions that I think people want to hear. And you've just said there about the moment where you had to, or you made the decision, if the player comes off, you know what's going to happen next. You could have avoided that decision, but you obviously felt that was right. Now, you're not advising people to go out and look for those moments, but when they come, you can't avoid responsibility either. That's the job, isn't it? What advice do you give to the coaches out there who perhaps know I'm going to make this decision and there's something coming after it. Like that's a difficult, that's a complex situation. What do you say to people? That's a good question. That's a really good question because I think about this, not just in terms of decision-making, but maybe in terms of like dealing with people who trigger you, um, like anything that creates a little bit of anxiety, which all those things we're describing are like that. And so our tendency, I think, is to just try to avoid anything that causes us anxiety. But the problem with that is then we get no reps at dealing with our own anxiety. And so as uncomfortable as it is, it's almost like, can you look at those situations as opportunities to practice how you manage your anxiety or you manage your fears or you manage your, you know, whatever it is that comes to you in those moments. Um, and so it's like, it's like thinking about, okay, if, if my best self was this, right. And you could literally create like a sentence of what is my best self in these moments, how, like in that moment, where was I on a scale of, you know, zero to hundred percent at what percent did I become my best self? And, you know, you might say in some situations, like, let's say the one I just described, if I hadn't said anything to her, maybe I'm at like 10%, you know, but like, that's, that's not horrible. Like it just means that I have 90% to grow. And so now maybe the next time I'm at 50%, maybe I talk to her, but I wait a long time or kind of soften the blow or whatever. Um, and so it's like, how do you just move the needle and try to get better at it all the time, as opposed to just thinking of it as like overwhelming every time it's not overwhelming. It's almost like, okay, I need these opportunities 
to help me get better at dealing with my responses because I would rather have a response than a reaction. And the reaction is going to be something that I'm like, it's just happening. Like it's a cyclone. Yeah. A response is like, I'm actually choosing how I am going to do something. Yeah, it's less emotional. And I, I have to admit, I, I spent some time at Football Association and I I wasn't an FA man. I, I'm certainly not an FA man. I'm not, I'm not well-rounded enough. But I did learn a lot there about, we talked about this idea of looking at yourself on 30,000 feet or, or put, the one thing they told me was putting a camera up in the top corner of the room and seeing yourself from that perspective. And when you look at your reactions and the way you react and the things you say and the words you choose, it's a whole different ballgame. It's not about tactics. You've got to have that done by then. But when you start to get into this realm that you're talking about now, this is where I think you truly start to have uh, you know, a real impact. And, and what you're describing is, is that ability to choose um, a response, I think you called it, didn't you, over an emotional reaction. You know? mm -hmm. And, you know, I'll tell you this, like, we we used to have a camera that watched our bench, it focused on our bench, yes. and that included the coaches, right? And it was, it was cringy, like, sometimes I would be like, ooh, did I really do that? Or did my face look like that? Or did I say that, you know, like, but it's such a great objective feedback tool, because especially if you can watch that as if it were someone else and just kind of like make objective comments like, oh, that person seems a little bit anxious or that person seems, you know, really out of control or, and then like give yourself advice on like, okay, how would I advise that person, which is obviously you at some point, then it, it kind of depersonalizes it enough that you can get objective about your advice and now it's just a matter of, um, do you have the courage to take your own advice? But that that bench cam, I mean, everybody talks about that bench cam as, as for the players. And I would say um, that, was, that was a really good regulator for me. Um, and some people are like, well, do you think that, you know, your, your team acted differently because you were filming the bench? And I'm like, maybe, but is that a bad thing? Like, you know, I don't know if it's bad. So I just... And I wanted to highlight good things that happen on the bench. You know, when you see somebody who's like, you know, the second or third string left back, who's cheering really hard for the first string left back, like that, that needs to be celebrated. Cause that's hard to do. You know, when you see like, you know, people who are just like coming together and giving energy to the group when the when they need it, not just when things are going good, that needs to be celebrated. And so that just gave an opportunity to, to see a lot of things, um, not just the coaches, but for sure, when you watch it, you're just like, do I really want, I, I would watch it on like, <laughs> like fast speed. So I wouldn't have to cringe through the yeah, whole with the volume down. <laughs> <laughs> well, You were the first though, Becky, you were the first, right? Everybody does it now. I, I in my last couple of college roles, I've, we've, we've done that. We've picked out people on the bench, highlighted it, but you began this process. Nobody thought of filming the bench before you did it at UF. I haven't seen it in any other country in the world. And there was some derision from people. I remember talking to some coaches and they said, oh, they filmed the bench. It's so stupid. They just didn't understand. They didn't get it. They didn't understand what it was you were trying to do. They didn't want to be open-minded enough to, to see that side of it. But it was pioneering and, and nobody was doing it at that time. So for you to do that and then use the feedback. And again, look internally and be vulnerable with yourself and your staff. Like, again, people aren't doing this stuff or weren't doing this stuff. And I don't know what the next thing is. I don't know what 
like when the bench cam came in first. I don't know what our next thing in soccer will be, but I'm looking forward to that moment because I think these are the moments that kick us off. And the other thing I would say is that I've got I'm I've always in my life wanted to have this rogue gallery, and I've wanted to film these sometimes youth coaches mainly, and and put them on this rogue's gallery and show them, look, this is you, this is how it really is. Uh, and I think I'll probably get sued, and, and that would be terrible. But I, I just feel like it has to be done because of the point you're making. When people see themselves, they don't realize that that's what they're doing. And that kind of segues us into a little bit of the youth coaching and, and you know, the aspiring coaches listening who want to come into the female game. And, you know, I, I'm a little bit concerned that listening to Carly Lloyd's comments recently about the game in, in America and the youth game. Where do you see us as a coaching industry in the youth game, in the female game right now? You know, are we... Are we where we need to be? Like, where are we on this? Ooh, that's a, well, you could have a whole series of podcasts on that. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, it, it's a, it's a challenging situation. I've always thought the United States presented such a challenge because of its geography, right? We are so huge. And that hugeness in terms of not just like the vastness of our country, but the number of players playing. And the way I think about it is like, let's just say I'm in a tiny country. Let's go like Slovenia because we had a Slovenian. So I'll pick Slovenia. Let's say they have a player who's um, really developed at something. Maybe they're technically really amazing, but um, you know, they're still a little bit naive tactically. Well, in the U S if you have that kid and you're in a selection situation, it's probably just going to be like, well, let's, let's see what else is out there next, you know, because there's so many people to choose from in Slovenia. Like they're like, Hmm, well, she's got something we can build on and we're just going to have to develop the rest of it. That's the advantage of small. And now obviously the negative of small is you got a really small pool to pick from. And sometimes you can't correct those flaws, but like, I think that we probably um, it's like, it feels like, and this is from a coach's perspective and a player's perspective, it probably feels like a little bit of a discardable environment. Like if you're not there yet right now, it's like next for a coach or for a player. And that doesn't really feel good to anyone because I, I think we probably end up pushing kids, pushing coaches out of the sport. Um, and how do you fix that? But I think it's, it's somehow rewarding, not just results, but development, like moving players into higher and higher levels. Um, but it's just very complex with the size of our nation. It's almost like, um, you know, the very old school ODP back in the day when there was like, um, they had a Olympic sports festival every year in between the Olympics and each region had their team, you know, so the North, the South, the West, and the Midwest and the far West had teams and they would play each other. And it was, it was a super competitive environment because these were amateur women, that were the best in their whole entire region, which is like a, still a pretty big country when you think about the size of those spaces um, playing each other. And then that fed into the Olympic team or the, at that time, I guess more the national team because it wasn't even an Olympic team. Um, but, but that concept of, you know, you, there was a clear pathway of how you advanced. You made your district team, your regional team, your state team, your state team went to play in your region. You made region pool or region team. And then potentially you, if you were good enough, you could play on that Olympic sports festival team. And then if you were good enough, you could play on the national team. And now I just think it's, it's much more blurry as to how you get there. 
out of necessity, like there's some things that needed to evolve for sure, but it's um, it's definitely a challenge in, t- in figuring out how do we create the top half percent of 1% and still serve the multitude of people who want to play that don't have those aspirations. It is. And I will say this is we've talked about this on the podcast before. We have a situation here where clubs, youth clubs, perhaps even colleges, they're developing players, but not for their own first team. Whereas in Britain, we develop players for the first team. So if you join a club at seven years old, there's a vested interest in getting that player through the system because they're the club that benefit at the end. Here in the States and perhaps in some other parts of the world, that's not always the case. Yes, it's great to get a kid into college, but then the kid leaves. And yes, it's great to have a kid graduate from your program, but then they go pro. So it is, it is different, isn't it? It is it's complex. Not as easy as people think it might be. Totally not easy problem to solve. And I, I'm not sure. I mean, I know if we, if there was a clear solution, we would already be doing that because we have a lot of smart people involved in this problem. Um, and it's not just our sport either. I mean, it, if you look at it, it's, it's across sports. And, you know, with the varying changes in the landscape in collegiate soccer, like that could play a huge role in youth sports as well because broad-based athletic programs, meaning um, colleges that sponsor, you know, 20 teams or more, that could be going away based on a lot of what's happening right now. And once those teams go away, why do people want to play youth sports? Well, they're chasing the opportunity to play in college. If there's less opportunities to play in college, it affects everything. And so um, I just feel like, you know, there's a lot of changes coming and maybe some of those changes will help club sports because it'll put more of an emphasis on like a top-down approach like you described in yeah. a club system as opposed to just a collegiate chase. Yeah, it doesn't It doesn't feel like, and I've had a couple of my, my own kids play and they don't, they don't want to be soccer players, they don't want to be professionals, but it doesn't feel like there is a grassroots, whereas in Britain and Europe perhaps there is a grassroots and you can choose to elevate to another level or you get selected to go to another level. Here, you know, I know we have rec and competitors, but that's not it. It just doesn't, it feels like we're missing a step. Um, well, there, I, there's I don't a huge difference between sport. like sports for all podium, yeah. you know, like how do you yeah. balance those two? Because they're kind of in direct conflict at times. They are, yeah, they are. But I don't know that there's anybody better place to speak on this subject. And I hope somebody out there is asking you because you've developed players through your program. I've, I've got someone here, Danielle. Potopolis, uh, Heather Mitt, Abby Wombat, Erica Timrak. These players have come through your system, played professional, won World Cup. And now we're seeing this year, probably the first time we I think we've just seen FC Kansas City sign a 15-year-old and a 17-year-old straight from the youth game. Like, this is a different world, and you've alluded to it there. Like, I don't think there's anybody better place to speak on this than you. So, so where is it going? Like, is this the first screen shoot of the future that we're seeing, do you think, now in... In, you know, kind of identification? Such an interesting question because, you know, the men's side has been dealing with this, um, this professional um, conflict with collegiate players for quite some time. And, you know, they've pushed a model of year round play as opposed to the fall season, like we have it now. And a lot of, um, a lot of women's coaches have pushed back on that model. And now there's another model that the women have put forward too. So it's, it's definitely progressing, but I think, um, it's like you just really need to learn from what is happening ahead of you. So for example, on the men's side, 
you knew this was going to come to the women's side. Like we were just naive if we didn't think it wasn't in terms of the pro uh, game impeding, not impeding, but coming into the college space and taking collegiate recruits that are committed to colleges and now having them bypass college and going there. Um, but you can look at other sports too. I mean, you know, people were like, you know, the transfer portal or, or NIL, that's really going to affect like men's basketball and football. No, that's, that's kind of come to everybody at some point. It already is. And so sometimes I feel like we get a little bit siloed within our sport. And that's easy for me to say now, because I, I get to work with all sports and not just soccer because it is consuming. I mean, you, you kind of have to stay in your lane when you're in it. Um, but it just gives you such a um, vision of what potentially could happen when you see the whole picture as opposed to just your own sport. And it's not a bad thing to, to go to like a community club model. And I think yeah. people are seeing what that really means with, you know, shows like Wrexham and things like that. Yeah. Like, because it, it really isn't just about the football. It's, it's about yeah. the community. It's about supporting something and rallying around something. And I think that's pretty cool. And, and you're seeing that somewhat like with some of the USL teams that are coming on, I think they're trying to take on that vibe of a community club and I really I'm really excited about that because when I've watched some of the USL men's games in the markets they're in the crowd reflects the the market and that's amazing like it's like those people are loyal and they are they are supporting the team in a way that looks different than you know a crowd that goes to a national team game so yeah. I think it's pretty cool it, I, I hear them I, I forget what it, where it was I read this but it was it was kind of a synopsis of, of the league and where we were and the 10 years of professional soccer in this current iteration. And it was really clever in the way that it was written because they talked about superstars and people just going to watch a player. Then, you know, the clubs develop their own identity. Then the brand comes along. And then afterwards, instead of people following players, they begin to have this feeling towards their local club. And that's a process that's taken place in the NWSL over a period of seven to eight years. I went, I live in Jacksonville now, obviously, and I went to watch the um, men's Armada team play probably nine months ago. I was in town for something. And there was a there was a guy with a drum, there was a play, there was songs, chants. And I, I felt like I was at a non-league ground in England, you know, with like a thousand fans there. And, you know, it's everything to them. You can hear every voice on the pitch. And it's the first time in my decade in America that I felt that soccer had become football. And that's not... I don't mean that in a disrespectful term. I, I mean it in terms of we are starting to creep into that territory now, aren't we? Because the game is established. And that can only be a good thing. And I hope that, what, like you say, what the USL and everything is trying to do. Um, I can tell you this. Um, you know, part of that is, you know, there's so much loyalty to collegiate sport in this country, right? Yeah. And that's changing a little bit because the people are changing so rapidly. You know, like we've seen men's basketball is the easiest because it's a small roster. Like there were literal rosters this year where the entire team turned over. So if you went and watched them last year and you came and saw them this year, you would not recognize one name on the roster. Well, people start thinking like, you know what? I'm not really going to buy any merch because like 
I'm, I don't want to buy a, you know, a Smith Jersey and Smith isn't going to be there next year. So now it just becomes, are you going to be loyal to your institution, which feels so much less personal than being loyal to, you know, people who are in the program. So there is a part of me that thinks, you know, whether it's USL, whether it's NWSL, whether it's clubs, um, they can fill that void that maybe, maybe we're losing some viewership with people in, in collegiate spaces. And maybe that viewership goes to a different place when it comes to um, showing what club support looks like, because, you know, I mean, you know, better than anyone, like if you're like a, an Aston Villa fan at age seven, you're an Aston Villa fan oh, yeah. at age 70, you don't switch. Yeah. No matter so, how good or bad they are. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So like that's yeah. uh and, and that's true right now, collegiately in some ways. I just think it's losing its cachet a little bit when yeah. the turnover becomes so enormous. That's such a good way to put it. I never thought of it like that, the name on the back of the shirt. I could spend $100 on this jersey and that. It happened It happened to me. It happened to me. I got carried away in my time at OU with um, uh, Lincoln Riley and, and the quarterback. And I can't remember his name now, but it was amazing. And he left to go to USC. And and I, like my heart fell out. I loved watching this guy run around. He was unbelievable. And and he went. And and all of a sudden now someone else is there. And I, it's so right when you say that. Like you got to look at it in those terms because that is how sport is in this country, isn't it? The merchandise side and the you know that side of things is part of the fabric of U.S. sport. Mm-hmm. It's such a good way to look at it. Um, I got to remember his name before the end of the podcast. Now. <laughs> So let's take this, if you don't mind, let me take this towards the coaches and the aspiring coaches that are listening and already so much for them to pick up on and look at. You mentioned a little earlier about wherever they are and whatever space they're in, they can be working on the uncomfortable things and working on um, perhaps reflecting in action as well as reflecting on action. So they're reflecting as moments arise and being a bit more conscious of the things they say and do. A lot of people listening here today will, will dream of being a head coach in college or a coach in the NWSL or whatever it might be, national coach one day. Wherever they are, whatever they currently are doing, is there a framework? Is there a model? Is there some advice that you would perhaps even give your younger self where they can pin it up on their wall and say, right, for the next six months, I'm going to focus here or I'm going to start with this. But sometimes it's about where do I start? Of course, I mm-hmm. want to get better tactically. Of course, I want to get better, you know, recruiting. Of course, I'm, but where do I start? And I want them to be able to, to tune in today and, and perhaps maybe start that process because they, they might feel a little lost. You know, um, it's interesting in my career, I have never been an assistant coach. I was a head coach at 21, Florida head coach for 27 years, head coach of the Pride, and then stopped coaching. And so I'm, and I've honestly, this sounds a little crazy, but like, I've really been jealous of, of assistant coaches because it's such a different role, you know? And, and I want to just hit on that for a second, because I think you're right. A lot of people aspire to be the head coach, not really understanding fully the difference between those roles. And so I'm going to switch sports for just a second, because I think it makes it clearer to see it. But like, um, we have a coach that we work with as a football coach. So he was a very, very successful defensive coordinator. Um, really, really good. Right. Then he gets a head coaching job and he's in his head coaching job. And he says, as a quote in one of his press conference one day, um, when I used to coach, 
because when you're the head coach, you don't, you don't get to coach as much, you know, like when you're the D coordinator, you're coaching every day. When you're a position coach, you're really coaching every day. You know, like you are in the trenches teaching techniques and tactics and all that kind of stuff. When you become the head coach, a lot of times your time gets taken up by administrative duties, recruiting, um, dealing with parents, uh, going to boosters, fundraising, all this different stuff. And so it's like, first of all, be aware of what you want, because if you want to coach, take pride in being an assistant and stay in that role. And, and a perfect example of that was Alan Kirkup, who coached with me for a long, long time. Alan was a head coach, a very successful head coach. And then he, he went back to the UK. When he came back over, he's like, I want to coach. I do not want to do all that other crap. And so when he asked, like, it was actually through a mutual friend where I found out that he wanted to be an assistant coach. I'm like, Al wants to be an assistant coach for me. Like I was just taken aback because I think he's like one of the best teachers of the game ever, but I understood it when he explained it. He's like, I want to coach. I want to be on the field coaching players, not in the office, in meetings and all this other stuff. And so that's number one. The second thing I would say is like, there's a huge difference between making suggestions and making decisions. And I love making suggestions. Love it. <laughs> I Decision-making, there's the finality to that and a weight of that that is a whole different beast. And, and there's some power in that too. Like there's some autonomy and you feel like you can put your own stamp on things. But like, if you're an assistant coach, what I would really recommend is when hard things come up with your team, before decisions are made, keep a journal and decide what you would do. You're the head coach in this situation. What would you do? Like literally write it out. Let the situation play itself out. Let the coach, the head coach make the decision they make, whether it's different than yours or the same as yours. And then just let it play itself out and see, kind of grade yourself based on the decision you would have made and the consequences and potentially unintended consequences that occurred from what decision you would have made versus what was made. And maybe it's the same, but like that to me is a way of sort of um, giving yourself reps without being in the seat, but realizing like the weight of your decision. So for example, if you say, well, I would kick that player off the team. You can't just put that like, okay, okay, what do I need to do now? Then I would have to talk to my athletic director. I would have to talk to the parents. I would have to make sure that my direct supervisor is aware of all this, like plan out all those steps that you would need to take if that's what you're going to do. Instead of just saying, well, this person's a problem. I would kick them off their team. And then remember, you didn't recruit them fully either. You didn't sit in their living room and say, hey, we're going to help you through the tough times. So like all those things that go into it make decision-making much, much harder than it appears on the outside. That's great advice. There'll definitely be people starting their journals after listening to this for sure and absolutely should. I think that that ability to look internally and hypothesize and then reflect, oh, actually, I didn't see that. Or actually, if I'd made my decision in your hypothetical situation, th that's where the learning takes place, isn't it? They've got to actually mm -hmm. be honest with themselves and then say, okay, because that's, like you say, that's the learning. Since I've never been an assistant coach, one thing I've always admired in assistant coaches that I've had is when when they can really um, kind of create their niche. So, for example, I just mentioned Alan. 
amazing teacher of the game. Like, here's the things I really respect about Alan. He'll set something up that we're going to do. He'll explain it. It's super clear. Sometimes it still doesn't go great, right? You know, maybe somebody didn't hear or listen or catch what it was. And he'll be the first one to say like, all right, let's pause for a second. Um, I think I didn't give enough detail as to what's supposed to happen here. And like, he'll reteach it. Like that takes um, recognition and humility to be able to uh, like to have people learn in a different way than maybe, maybe you did explain it very clearly, but that's not necessarily how it was taken in. And so, but his niche of like, he perfected his craft as a teacher and, and like, people are just like, wow, like you let him run all the trainings. I'm like, I let him um, begin all the training, start all the trainings. We talk all the time about like, what are the nuances of what we're going to do, but he explains better than I do. Why wouldn't I like, he's so much better at that, you know? And then you maybe have another assistant who's an amazing recruiter. Maybe you have another assistant who just loves to analyze and maybe wants to do all your set pieces. But like what I've respected is when they find their niche and when they potentially like exceed the job description. So if you're like, you know, we have managers on our team in college, we usually would hire um, graduate level students for those manager jobs. We really tried to hire people who were trying to get in or stay in coaching. And so there's a certain job description that you have as that manager, but they would always do more. And those people who do more, they are way, way far ahead in their career at this point, as opposed to the people who just sort of did like, they didn't do anything wrong. They did what the job description required, but that was it. These other people who were advanced, they just, they would do more than the job required on a regular basis without the need for anybody recognizing it or anything. It was more for their personal growth. This, this concept of doing more and, and being, being an extra mouth person, whatever you want to call it, it took me coming outside of soccer and sport to realize that not everybody in the world is doing this. For the longest time, I lived in this world where that you just don't know anything else. That is what everybody around you is doing. It's what the players are doing. It's what the administrators are doing. It's what the staff are doing. And I've said it before on a couple of episodes of the podcast. We, I think we had Chris Sargent on um, in the first series. He was talking about very real and honest and vulnerable. And it's just a great episode in terms of he spoke from the heart and I thought he got me to say at the same time that there's been a couple of times in my career where things do happen and you don't, you're not in soccer or whatever. And I went to work in security a little bit and I worked in this world where people just didn't want to be there or didn't want to show up on time or, or just wanted to leave early. And to me, that was such, a, it was wonderful experience learning why certainly made me value the skills and the stuff that I'd, I'd been lucky enough to be involved in, but it showed me a different side of life. And until you see that, I don't think you understand what you've just said. And I want people listening to understand that it doesn't go unnoticed, does it, by people like you, because mm-hmm. you, you, you notice when it's not there, I should say, it's probably the best way for me to put it. And I think you make a, such a strong point too about like, people think all the time, like, well, I'm competing for this job with these people who didn't play a sport. So they did internships and they had all this work experience. And mm-hmm. all I did was play for four years. And you and then you have to remind them like, Okay, I just want you to think about like the regular student. What are they doing in a team setting? You know, maybe they're doing a group project here or there, maybe. Um, But they they don't they don't even 
understand how to interact in a team because it's just not been their experience. We live in teams so much that it's like water for a fish. We don't even know we're in it, but we have all those innate skills of what it looks like to be on a team, whether that is cooperation, dealing with people with vastly different personalities than us, whether it's um, being able to put aside um, my ego because someone is better than me, being able to take direction um, and give direction. Like those people who haven't been in team settings, those are not innate skills for them. And so it's like reminding people that are on teams and have been in sports, all the transferable skills that they have to, to be able to go and do whatever they want. And, and I hope, well, I know that the graduates that are coming out now and going into the world of work, they are so sought after the student athletes because of the skills that you're mentioning, because of the adversity they've dealt with and because of the constant tests that are thrown up with being a collegiate athlete or being a professional player, even having to deliver on a weekly basis and everything else. And I feel like, Becky, that we need to do something, the collective we, to maintain some of the young ladies who come out of the NCAA and keep them in the sport. I remember approaching the NCAA, sorry, the United Coaches Stock Association a couple of months back about a player who played for me who I thought would be a fantastic coach. And I was looking for a program of sorts of mentorship or like what support can we get and is there you know bursary money for coach education whatever these things don't really exist they're out there a little bit and there is some funding available if you remember and all this kind of stuff but i don't know that we are doing enough at the minute to keep those amazing people in the sport and, and help them in the moments they need so they can be the coaches of the future because there's so much experience every time i look at a 20-year-old female student-athlete, I look in their eyes, I can see the, the pain, I can see the struggle, I can see the anxiousness, I can see the joy, I can see the love, the hope. It's all being lost for the most part. Is there something we can do? Should we try and do, because everybody's going on for their own career, they're all going to earn loads and loads of money, doing wonderful jobs, changing the world, who would want to be a soccer coach? I get it. But is there something we can do? Should we be doing more? Well, you know, two things that come to my mind, I'm going to go sports specific first. Um, we also have to show that you can be a coach and have a healthy environment. You can have a healthy lifestyle. You can, and I'm not going to say balance because that's a, that's just a poor word. I don't think anyone on wall street has balance either. Um, but I think it's like, if you, if your players look at you and they're like, Oh, hell no, I don't want to do that. Like it's, 24 seven it's you know like look they don't have good healthy habits because they don't sleep they don't eat well they don't exercise because the life is so hectic who wants to do that you know and especially if you're not getting paid a ton of money to do it which besides a few jobs that you're not right so i think that's number one is like how are we modeling our jobs to student athletes in terms of like the thing that they see every day do they want to be that or are they just like oh no um, and then I think the second thing, um, it's not even just about the sport itself, but like at Florida, we have this amazing program for our female student athletes. It's called stay in the game. And it's just shows like creates an awareness for athletes of all these different opportunities to stay in sport, but not necessarily the traditional things you think about, not necessarily just a coach, not just a administrator, but maybe it's like, Hey, um, 
you know, you're an architect that designs stadiums, or maybe you're a um, medical personnel that are like, whether it's counseling or physical um, training things that you're doing to help student athletes. But it's just, we, we gather all these women from all these different industries, Gatorade, Nike, you name it, um, fanatics, and they come and they talk to our women athletes about, this is how I got into sports. This is how I stayed in it. Almost all of them are former student athletes in these positions. And it just it's just creating awareness as to what else is out there to stay in the sports world, whether it's through coaching or something else. Yeah, it's so important, isn't it? It's so important. And it more, more needs to be talked about it. And I'm glad there's programs like that out there, I think. I think it's something that needs to be part of the national conversation if it isn't already. And I, I hope one day to lobby the NCAA and get in front of someone. But uh, at the moment, unsuccessful. So we'll, we'll put that one on the back burner. Um, going forward then, with everything that's going on, with all the changes, with with everything that's happened at all levels of the game and and all the changes you would have seen in recent decades, obviously, right at the forefront of this, what does the future hold? Are, are, what are you excited for for the future? Like, what what really now are you kind of saying? And I, I want to talk also about your uh, What Drives Winning uh, project and, and the amazing work you're doing with that as well. But perhaps just before we get there, what are you excited about for the game, for the sport, for female coaches, for the future? You know, what what is there for us to get excited about? Well, I actually think those two sort of go together because um, a big emphasis of what drives winning is holistic student athlete development. And I do think that if if things shrink a little bit, which is possible, like we talked about broad-based sports programs going away, um, I think there is a possibility of having a more holistic approach to the sports that do survive that and I and honestly I feel like soccer is one of those ones that will just because soccer is a large roster it's um it's such a popular sport worldwide it's just got so much going for it in terms of its global appeal um I still think we have work to do in soccer you know you I just watched the women's volleyball NCAA finals and they're you know 20,000 people in the stands soccer doesn't look like that right now and and part of that is things that are important are like windows of tv think about it like when we're playing our national championship that same weekend is freaking every conference's football championship you know volleyball just played theirs and there's like a void unless you're watching like the avocado bowl or something you know like there's just not a lot going on sports wise during <laughs> the, the cheese it bowl yeah, you know yeah, yeah. and then you look at like softball for example softball is playing in that window um where again the sports landscape is pretty died down and so they can take front and center and that stuff matters and and we've been talking about that in soccer especially collegiate soccer for quite some time like why does volleyball who plays indoor in air conditioning have more practice opportunities before their season starts and a longer season than soccer? Like that just makes no sense. And so it's like finding ways to continue to lobby those that make decisions to enhance our sport. And I think that is happening again. um, I know that the women's group has put together a model that's a little bit different schedule that enhances some of those things. So it's not like it's not happening I just think um, if we want our sport to be one of those sports that does survive any potential cuts, then we have to put work into that. 
Um, and then to flip to the, the holistic side of the athletes, like if we want people to have careers that don't create collateral damage, whether that's coaches or whether that's athletes. And when I say collateral damage, whether that's like mental health, um, divorces, like people who just leave the sport thinking this was not a great experience, then we have to pay attention to these people as people. And, you know, Bill Bezik, who is a regular at the United Soccer Coaches, I mean, I love his saying, he talks about human beings versus human doings. And um, we, we coach people, like, if you don't like people, don't coach, you know, if yeah. you, if you, if you're like a, a stat geek, then be an analyst, don't be a head coach, yeah. because you make yeah. too many decisions that affect people. And that's yeah. the important part of what we do is, you know, are you like, we, I have a sign in my office, I've had it for like probably the last 10 years. Um, who are you becoming as a result of the chase? It's really simple. So I'm going to pursue really, really hard to win. Like I want to win, but who am I becoming as I do that? Am I becoming a lesser version of myself or a better version of myself? And I think that's where what drives winning puts a lot of its time and energy into helping both student athletes and coaches survive this higher performance space without collateral damage. I, I have to tell you that I, I attended the, um, the the session at the conference, uh, coaches conference last year, United Soccer Coach, and it was the room was full, and you could you could have uh, been there for another two hours, and people would have lapped up every word. The reason that I think what drives winning is getting so central to the national discourse is exactly what you've just said. You're not talking about losing. You're not talking about participation. You want to win. But there's a way to do this. And I've talked on the podcast before about the real cost or, or winning at what cost. And I don't, you know, this is a huge topic. And, you know, I don't want to drag you into this, but I don't want to skirt over it either. It's, there are examples of winning programs. There are examples of programs where those things aren't being considered. We had someone on the podcast describe it. I think it was Sean Nahas came on and was describing it as sophisticated coaching versus coaching for the sake of results. And, this is, this is part of the national discourse now. I don't want to be sat here in 10 years' time and have a raft of people come out and tell us about how terrible their experience was and how they suffered through the 20s and 30s and they didn't feel like they could talk about it in 2023. So what needs to be said about this topic without getting too much mm -hmm. into it, you know, without skirting across it, what needs to be said? I mean, I think we really have to rethink the um, disposable coach and disposable athlete model. And that's, that's a big, big undertaking. I'm not saying that's something little, but like when, you know, what was it? I think I saw in the MLS, um, what was the number? Maybe 14 coaches in the MLS turned over this year. Um, maybe it was more than that. I don't quote my numbers, but it was a, it was a really surprising number for me in terms of the number of teams that exist. The NWS, NWSL, same thing. Um, it's just like, and, and so if, if you're looking at results as your only metric and why does that happen? Because the people who make decisions, they can't, they don't, they're not sophisticated enough to have other metrics, right? Because they haven't probably coached. Most of them are administrative. So how do we help them? It's not their fault, really. It's like, how do we bridge that gap between creating um, metrics that help people understand like what culture looks like, what progress looks like, instead of just like a number that's the final because if we could control our outcomes we would all be undefeated and clearly we're not 
And so everybody would be. Yeah, exactly. So like, what are some other things that we can do that, that show, you know, what those metrics should look like in terms of having a healthy environment and healthy environments. Sometimes it takes a little while to turn the ship, you know, it's not always instantaneous. And so when you're, you know, firing people or trading people after a year or two years of mediocre or sub mediocre results. And, and maybe for some reasons, like if there are, if the, if the culture is poor, if they're going in the wrong direction, all that, I'm not trying to dismiss that there aren't times where you have to make those changes, but right now it just seems so predicated on purely outcomes. And I think that's a, that's a dangerous place to be because it creates an insecurity amongst everyone in the organization. It creates no vulnerability. I'm not going to show any weakness because it could be me that gets cut next. I'm not going to, you know, be vulnerable as a coach because that's going to give the players power. The players are like, I'm not going to be vulnerable as a player because I don't want the coach to use that against me and weaponize it. Like that's the part where we've got to find a way to make some big changes. I couldn't agree more. It's the, it's the derision. It's the vitriol, it's the spite, and it's the self-protection that doesn't create an environment where anybody can be at their best, coaches included. And we work with a number of players, you know, professional players still, and it's amazing the amount of young players I talk to. I talk to a player this week in Europe who played Champions League football, not for a major, major team yet, but played in the Champions League group stages. 23 years old, she's got three caps in the national team she plays for, and she described to me moments, two days ago, how she doesn't feel that she's in an environment where she can express herself, try things, make mistakes, show what she really can do. She's going to, her development is going to be stunted by that situation. We all want these players to be all they can be. Of course, we have to win as we get there, but this is a very real problem that surely when I, when I talk to other professionals who come on this podcast, when I talk to Jody Taylor, when I talk to Remy Allen, they come on here and say that they want to be told what to do, they want to be held to account, that they want a space and an environment where they can grow. And if I need to do something better, tell me, show me, give me the information, and then I'll do it. And if I don't do it well enough, drop me. But it just feels like we're still missing a beat. And I don't know. I don't know how we solve this problem. Because people need to maintain their jobs. They need to keep getting paid. They need to, there's a family to support. I think you've hit the nail on the head there. It's a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy, isn't it? But we have to change it. It has to change. There's too many young people's lives being affected by this. Yeah, and, and coaches too. I mean, I, I've seen a lot of coaches come and go and it's it's a very traumatic situation when mm-hmm. even like the public is weighing in on you after a bad outcome. Um, and yeah, you can say like, shut out the noise, but we all have feelings. We're all humans. Yeah. Like, and even yeah. if you're not on social media, one of your friends might be like, dude, did you see what was on Twitter? <laughs> you know, like, and then you're like, no but i guess you know so it's like i i just feel like how do we how do we enjoy sport in a healthy way um and and i think honestly a big challenge of that is the amount of money that's involved with it now like you know when i started coaching at barry which was so far long ago so obviously like the money was way different 
people went into that job because they wanted to get into coaching. You certainly did not go into it for the money. And so when we attach more money to these things, whether it's professional players, whether it's coaches, there's going to be higher stakes. There's going to be more on the line. And that's when I think these decisions come into play. You know, people aren't going to get fired from a $20,000 a year job because you're 500. But if you're at a, you know, a $2 million a year job and you're 500, you go on. And so like, that's a, that, that plays a big role in it. And again, I'm not saying we should pay people less. I'm just trying to figure out how to not let the money become the ruler of decision-making. And ultimately this is something that aspiring coaches, people in the industry who are listening or will listen to this in the coming years, they're going to have to think about that. They're going to have to think about where they are on this spectrum. They're going to have to look internally and they're going to have to perhaps answer to themselves, if not, if not to anyone else. And maybe that's a good thing. Maybe, maybe yep. To whom much is given, much is expected. So when you think about the grass being greener, um, that's something to consider. When and you know when you come into this industry, if you are aspiring, think about that now. It's basically what we're saying for the future, isn't it? I, I'd love to wrap this section up. I have to talk to you about some one of your, I I think for me one of your most seminal things that you you put out there content wise with it was your time at UF. It was the green spot. It was <laughs> this work. It's years ago now, but I I'll never forget where I was when I saw it. It stayed with me forever. We have to share that with everybody who's never heard about it. Do you mind telling everybody the thinking and the philosophy behind the green spot? Yeah, it was actually, um, we had a really talented team that we had a lot going on that year. We were changing our venue in terms of uh, where we played our postseason games. And there's just a lot going on with that group, but it was a really talented group. And we wanted them to play less thinking and more just getting after it. But the problem with that is like, you can't send mixed messages about it. So for example, if you want to play really fast and aggressive, there's going to be more mistakes. So if I'm as a coach harping on every little mistake, they're going to start, stop playing that way because they don't want to hear that from me. So I have to accept whatever I am choosing. Like if I'm choosing to be a team that shares the ball and then they make one more pass inside the six. And I'm like, what are we doing? Well, like he, that you're sending mixed messages, right? So it's trying to find ways to, um, for the green dot was trying to find ways to let them be aggressive, help them move through mistakes, both as with us as coaches and them as teammates. And it's like a stoplight, you know, like when it's green, you go, we don't want to play yellow. We certainly don't want to be in the red. Um, but like that tentativeness, you can just see it when someone's thinking, thinking, thinking. Um, and I like to, I like to think about it like for freshmen, especially as like a, a fishing net, you know, like got all this stuff going through the net. So all this new information that we throw at new players, right. And freshmen want to please you. So they want to do everything right. Right. So their net, the holes in the net are like this tiny and everything gets stuck there and then at some point nothing else is going through because everything's stuck in the net so i'm like can you make it like a little bit wider <laughs> like so some things stick but some things go through like you trust yourself you're you're here because we think you're good so those things yeah. you don't have to think about all the time you know um and so it's like again like trying to create ways for people to play authentically themselves without fear of failure without without feel of failure. You talk about you talk about how we prepare 
I love this. You talk about how as high performers we prepare ourselves for negative. We we guard ourselves against perhaps a negative connotation. And if we're as the coach, the one who's providing that double standard, then that's the problem in and of itself. But I think when it gets to a certain level as well, and I experienced this in my own career, like we get to a certain level and, and it matters so much that we kind of get to that point where it's like, oh, if I really admit to myself that this goes wrong and it goes wrong, I could be I could be in trouble here. Uh, it happened for me with England. We we played Norway in the I think it was the second round of the of the World Cup in 2015, and I remember we went one 0 down, and I immediately started to think, oh, we've done all right. We've, we've done all right. If they all end today, we've done all right. I went through this whole. I said this on the podcast before. I went through this whole process in my mind of justifying everything. The last eight weeks of being away, missing my family, missing my kids, like all the sacrifice. It's okay because we've done all right. We actually went on to win that game, and then went on even further. So then I have to reckon with myself that I had that moment of of trying to protect myself. And there's going to be a lot of people out there who come to the same conclusion but might not know how. Can you talk quickly about like this protection that we have as mm-hmm. high performers, as coaches? How did, how did you deal with that? What should people expect if they haven't got there yet? I think that can help a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm a big believer in um, what's the worst that could happen. And honestly, once I think through what the worst that could happen, it's usually not that bad. Like, what's the worst that could happen? I could make a mistake. I could miss a penalty. I could make a bad decision as a coach and substitute the wrong player. Like, but like once I once I get my mind around that, it's less daunting than the actual thoughts I have in my mind just swirling around of all these things that could go wrong, you know. And so, I think there's a part of me that um, once I can sort of okay, if this happens, can I live with that? Yeah. And that's the worst case scenario. So the chances of that happening are pretty small. So like that to me gives me um, solace in, in feeling like I can go for it. Um, And, and I think the other part of that, especially from a coaching standpoint, again, are you worried about you and your growth and your team's growth? Or are you worried about like what people are going to think or say about you? And once you start worrying about that second part, like, it's really hard to be successful when that's what you're, you're always looking over your shoulder. And, and I think about it, like, you know, let's say you have a coach and they're on the hot seat, right? This is a real, this is a real thing. So what I try to think about it, like if I was, if I knew for sure at the end of the year, I was going to be fired, would I coach any different? And if I, if I would, then why wouldn't you do it? Because you know, you don't, you don't want to go through the year coaching, like, like almost like yellow instead of green, you know, like, so it's kind of like thinking, thinking in that way gives me freedom to just go for it and accepting, giving myself grace when I make mistakes, um, giving other people grace when they make mistakes, but realizing my response to the mistakes are prob it's probably way more important than the actual mistake that I made. And the mistake is often what is needed. We know this about learning. We know this about the brain. Without that mistake, there is no neurological pathway to a future decision. We get this. Your reaction as a coach to the situation, negative or positive, changes everything. And isn't that where the magic is? Isn't that where the winning is done in all seriousness, do you think? Totally. Because I think, I think if I can leave, if I can leave the game season career with no regrets, 
that doesn't mean that's not saying no mistakes like that's a whole different yeah. ball game right but no regrets yeah. Yeah. meaning like yeah i made mistakes but i learned from them i made mistakes and i responded well from them like all those things then that's that's the whole thing that you're talking about absolutely finally uh i want to ask you becky where do you draw your strength from? where do you draw you know when it's tough or when you need inspiration where do you draw your strength you know, I've always had really good people around me. Um, my friends, my family have never been like so invested in me as a sports coach that they feel like fans. Matter of fact, if anything, they're kind of like very humbling to me. Um, and yeah. so when I say humbling, I remember um, I was inducted into my collegiate hall of fame and my teammates were like, this is clearly not about your playing ability. It's only because you were a good coach. I'm like, thank you guys. Really appreciate it. <laughs> so it's like when you have people that sort of don't treat you any differently, no matter what stage you are in, um, that really keeps you a lot more even than people who are just like really in it because of the status of what you do. And I've always had that around me. Um, and so, you know, my parents who are both deceased at this point, but like when they would watch soccer, I don't think my mom still ever understood what offsides was at all and so you know we would play a game I remember one game we lost like four to one and I went over to their house for dinner that night she's like you guys played really well I'm like what game are you watching you know but like and so and it wasn't even she wasn't even fake about that like she she was just like yeah the score wasn't good but you played well and and so I think when you have that kind of unconditional support um, surrounding yourself with the right people really helps you weather all of the ups and downs of a crazy coaching career. That's great advice because you do go into this kind of blind thinking, I want to be a soccer coach and you have no idea what the next 20 years of your life is going to be like. And if you did, you might not do it, but getting that network around you, making sure you can touch base with the things that are important. These are things that people coming up through the industry are going to need. So, um, Becky, it's been an unbelievable hour. I cannot thank you enough for your time. I know you are, you know, super busy and you've got a million things going on still. I will never forget standing in that lightning delay and talking to you and watching you handle yourself with such grace and strength. 15, 20 people must have walked past us. And each one of them wanted a piece of you. They all wanted to say hello or look at you. I'll never forget. And you had time for them all. You, it was a knowing glance or sometimes a conversation or just a little touch on the shoulder as they went by. And and here I am talking to this person who resonates presence and, and, and you know, just, just oozes class. And, and I, I want to know why and how you've got to that stage and, and perhaps what, it's so important to you. It's blatantly obvious. It's so important to you to leave it better than you found it. You generally care about the next generation, the people you work with, how the game is left. Not everybody is like that. And it would be remiss of me not to ask how you got there or at least what it is that's important that you want to say to people about that because anyone who's been able to spend some time in your company will have seen that. And I just want you to talk about that as a final point, if you don't mind. I mean, that's that's easy because I just had so many people who helped me on my way up. I mean, so many people. And I remember, I'm going to just give one really good example. And probably a lot of people don't, may not even remember this person, but Clive Charles was the coach at Portland and Portland was really, really good. Um, you know, he coached Sinclair, he coached um, all these amazing strikers. And 
I remember I was coaching, I think it was like an ODP thing or something. And I was like this, I was the coffee getter who sometimes got to do a few things on the field. And, um, and I was doing, I was coaching something about a throw in. And so a player took a throw in and I actually stopped the action, asked her to retake the throw in. And at the time, Clive Charles was walking by. I like idolize Clive Charles. So then um, that later that night we're at dinner and Clive said something about, um, first of all, I'm like, I'm at dinner with Clive Charles. And then he said something about the throw-in practice. And I was like, oh my God, he actually saw me coach. And so like um, that, he had no idea the impact that that had on me. Um, yeah. And it was just because he noticed it wasn't, it was no big deal. Like I, I would hundred percent guess if you were able to ask him today, he would have no idea what I'm talking about, but like just that made a huge issue for me in terms of like, this is how it should be. Anson Dorrance, love him or hate him. I'm one of the people who love him, but like, you know, as a young player who played at Methodist college, an hour and a half down the street from him, a D three school that no one's ever heard of he would welcome me in to watch his training or to be part of his camp or do anything like that because I asked. And so, you know, it's like, if people like that can continue to open the door for you, I'm like, I better do that because these are giants who are doing that. And to me, that's always resonated with me. There are no doubt thousands of people listening and will listen to this who have been touched in that way by you and will continue to be, and hopefully will go on and, carry that sentiment on because we know the power that has on, on, on people coming through and if there's anything that we can say that we did in this game, you're doing it and that'll be. So a huge thank you from everybody here at theproplayer.com unbelievable episode again we are we are devoting our entire season to, to the, the female voices in the game and encouraging as many people as possible to listen and reach out and, and get involved and do whatever they, you know, they feel like they've always wanted to do and dream big and everything else and I don't think we could have done it any better than, than with you today Becky so thank you so much thank you it was my pleasure <laughs>